Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank Van Den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all viewers from all around the world. Welcome to the Humanizing Growth series hosted by the Institute for Real Growth. My name is Frank van den Driest. I'm co-founder of the Institute, and I'm super pleased to have today with me the chairman of the executive board and CEO of Heineken, Dolph van den Brink. Dolph, a very warm welcome to today's sessions. In one word, how are you at this very moment? Well, the sun is shining. The bars are finally reopened. So in that sense, uh, okay. But then, of course, with uh, it's hard to be fully okay, given what's uh, happening in the world around us, particularly, of course, what's uh, happening in, in Ukraine, which is very much uh, on our mind and actually dominating our day to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got quite a range of interesting topics uh, we're going to cover today. But indeed, I wanted to start with the war in, in Ukraine. What does that mean for Heineken? Well, your core topic is about humanizing growth and realizing uh, that we're not, as business, work in some uh, amoral fact that values and principles are at the core of everything. And it's at these moments that you're fully confronted by that, uh, by that reality. What it specifically means for Heineken, we don't have operations in, uh, in Ukraine. Across our Eastern European uh, operating companies, we have a lot of Ukrainian uh, colleagues and we have uh, a meaningful and sizable operation in, uh, in Russia. And and that means that all perspectives are represented within the, the company, as you can imagine. Well, you made a, a big decision uh, this week to stop selling uh, Heineken in, in Russia. Was not stopping selling Heineken in Russia even an option? No, but at the same time, you have to be thoughtful because there's too, so many sides to this. Uh, so... Initially, you don't know, is this going to be a couple of days or is this weeks or is this going to be an open-ended conflict? So last week, truth be told, we were very preoccupied with people's safety, evacuating families, evacuating people, launching humanitarian efforts, business continuity, a lot of those kind of things. And it was really the second half of last week that we really started to confront this decision. The dilemma is that you morally, you, you're obliged, convinced and committed to make a meaningful decision and, and signal that we're standing shoulder to shoulder with the international community. At the same time, one of our company values is care for people, care for all people. And we also have 1,800 uh, colleagues in Russia who have been part of the Heineken family for over two decades. And we didn't want to jeopardize our ability to be able to provide for them and their livelihoods. And that meant that fully closing was also problematic because you would instantly lose your ability to take care of your people. And with what we now know, and that we already had indications last week, the Russian government may step in and nationalize your assets. And, and yesterday became a big news story. So we feel that we found the right balance between a big meaningful signal in stopping with Brent Heineken in the Russian market keeping a small core business that allows us to provide for our local employees. But we also wanted to be clear that we were not driven by financial motives, 
by completely ring fencing and saying there is no financial profit whatsoever coming out of Russia. The cash needs to stay there for our people. What's difficult is that internal, external people see the world very black and white right now. And it's just, just get the hell out of there. And, and I can fully empathize. When you watch the news, you feel that moral indignation yourself as well. But as a CEO, you have a larger and more complex responsibility where you need to find a way of uh, providing for the, the different dimensions to this. For me, by the way, my most important audience are our internal employees and make sure that they fully understand why and how we make these decisions uh, so that they can uh, stand by it. And uh, it has been well received in the company. So if I just take a sneak peek into your life over the last, let's say, last two weeks, what percentage of of the time, working time, the last two weeks, did you spend on politics? Uh, Well, if you define politics in the broad sense, if you say how much was Russia, Ukraine, it was about 80% of my time. Since when are politics and business, politics indeed in in the broadest sense, politics and business so seem so inextricably linked at this very moment in time? Is that a new thing? I I think it touches on the core of of what uh, your institute uh, stands for. I, I think it has always been. And I don't know whether I, somehow the word politics and business sounds nasty or negative, but it's, yeah. let's say, values, principles, morals, and business. And and I think you and I and probably everybody listening to the book, we all agree that they are intrinsically linked. And, and that maybe for a couple of decades during this phase of shareholder capitalism, we we kind of pretended that we were in this moral vacuum where business could just worry about making money. And I think it's a fallacy and it has always been. It's not certainly that things are different now. It's more our paradigm is evolving again. Aren't they? Because isn't it so that there's a shift happening with, you know, the murder of uh, Floyd George, of we got COVID, uh, we got racial inequity, whole range of topics now war in Europe, that the need for businesses to take a stance because interestingly consumers trust businesses now more than almost any other institution at the same time they also demand more of of businesses taking a stance so isn't that isn't that a shift that's happening or is yep. it no i agree but i th- i guess i in an imperfect way i trying to say it was always important it's now not more important than before but our consciousness is shifting. I think collectively as society, we're more aware and, and that the paradigm of business should just preoccupy itself with making money. It, indeed, it, it is different. And, and maybe to your point, there are so many societal pressures surfacing right now uh, simultaneously that it's more needed. And therefore, it does feel different. And if I just look back, you know, the last 18 months in, in my new role as the CEO of the company, it's almost every week that there is a big theme erupting at some, some place. My first week, I, I started June 1st, 2020. And that was the week when Floyd George and Black Lives Matter completely erupted as a global phenomenon. The first video I did to the company was not about business and brands and what have you. It was about Black Lives Matter. It's interesting. So the large part of this audience are marketers and and marketers have traditionally always been basically the eyes and the ear or needing to represent the the perspective and the needs of consumers. 
came, you know, come up with solutions uh, for them. Now, these consumers, as I said, they trust businesses more than many other institutions by now, but they're also more demanding of indeed brands and companies to take the stance we just talked about. Now, given the fact that marketers are probably best placed to understand those different needs, how does that, what's that mean for the role of marketing in these discussions around values and taking a stance publicly? I think it's much broader than marketing. Indeed, marketing has a particular sensibility in sensing the world outside. That's something you rather have much more broadly in your company, but marketing is really the tip of the spear. But that sense of responsibility, when I think of our general managers, we're leading our operating companies in all these far-flung corners of uh, the world. They have that sensibility, or they should have that sensibility. So I think it's this more generic and yeah, you don't get this taught in university, in your bachelor or your master degree. So it is something new that is evolving. And I don't know, we, Heineken is a family uh, company and we have been around for five, six generations, 157 years. And also when you build a brewery, it's going to be there for 75 years or longer. That has always made us realize that we can only thrive if our community in which we are operating is thriving. Because, you know, if you just extract without giving back, you're not going to last long. So I think we always have had a certain sensibility uh, that goes back uh, to the early 20th century. But right now, it's so much more multidimensional. Then it was more really taking care of your employees and, and maybe the direct community. The number of dimensions that we need to be sensitive to and have a view on and take a stand on it yeah is mushrooming it's, it's coming so much larger right now and it's daunting i think a lot of our marketeers a lot of our general managers are struggling with that and, and so clearly you're saying i'm not outsourcing that to a function to marketing no. this is something that actually throughout the company we need to have our senses wide open to these things yeah i get it. we'll talk about marketing a bit later more we're also going to talk about humanized growth the uh, title of this series about the future but i'd like to start now actually with the questions few questions about you yourself and and, and your background because i read your father was a banker um, like others in the family and then you chose beer yeah my father was indeed a, a banker and for a while i thought i wanted to be a banker as well and thank god it uh, it didn't work uh, work out that way and they're kind of your life is all these, these little crossroads. And it's actually sometimes quite random how the crossroads come around and how you take a certain turn. So I had two, three crossroads. One was when I, I think it was in my second year uh, in university, I got um, some viral disease, nothing life-threatening, but it knocked me out for one or two months and I um, stayed too bad for, for a long period. And I started reading a lot. After probably wasting my first two years in university, drinking, partying, having fun, and I certainly a month, two months of reading. And I stumbled on, a, I was studying business administration, which was okay, but not something that I was very passionate about. And I stumbled on an introduction in philosophy. And to cut a long story short, I started taking evening classes alongside my studies of business administration. And then I was done with business administration. I actually decided to complete a master degree in philosophy, oh, wow. uh, which they seem like two extremes. Business administration, mundane about the world of money and entrepreneurship, and then philosophy, which is on the other side. And that duality has is something that's very important to me. And I've always 
felt I need those two sides. Actually, for a long time, I lost that more philosophical side, more reflective side, truth uh, be told, at the beginning of my career. But so that is kind of an important moment. And then I was, at, when you're done studies, I was applying for jobs. I didn't want to do it in the Netherlands because of my father. So I went to London and I was interviewing with these fancy investment banks. And then just the last interview, they start selling the proposition to you rather than, and there was this guy who said, yeah, I had not a single vacation, but then I had one weekend off and I flew to New York and I spent 10,000 pounds and, you know, so cool. I was like, damn, if this not is so. the selling story, I really don't get it. And then he came after me. He said, why did you study philosophy in addition to it? You should have done fiscal law because that would be more functional for doing big deals. That night I fly home and I arrive back in Amsterdam and it appears that my grandfather is passing away that evening. Wow. And I remember going straight from the airport to his house and standing there and suddenly it became very clear that, you know, world of money and, and banking was completely not my thing. And I abandoned that plan, you know, almost overnight. A couple of days later, I stumbled on this recruiter from Heineken, which was not, not a fancy professional recruiter. It was a guy, you know, former sales rep. I still, Dick for the Bell, I'm still in touch with him now, 24, 25 years later. And he was such a people person, you know, with a sparkle in his eyes. And I'm working at Heineken because of that guy. I'd never taken a marketing class or something like that, but because of that guy. And there was a sense of, hey, this is a people's company. This is about people. This is about also about traveling. It's about going places, about seeing the world. And that's how I ended up in a very different sort of industry. Well, uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> Totally can relate to a headhunter who makes, I don't know, who does an intervention or says something that actually has a dramatic impact on your career. Yeah. It did for me. It's interesting. You mentioned somewhere just in a side sentence something that really struck with me. You said, for a while, I lost that eye on the philosophical perspective of things. What made it come back? And so what happened to, to many people, you start your career and the competitive side comes out and you want to do well and you want to perform, you want to be recognized, and you want to, uh, to grow. And so I did. Of course, it's not like one tipping point. At some point, you start realizing that it's absolutely not about you, that actually when you make it about you, it's getting in the way of being a, a good leader. So when I went to the Congo, was already a first becoming aware that the way we're conditioned in the Western education system, in the Western companies of always having an answer. Our whole education system, uh, there's a problem you need to provide an answer. There's a model you need to apply it. There's always, you're providing answers and solutions. Yeah. And then at some point you're in the Congo leading 750 frontline sales reps. And you realize I need complete different skills, different competences than what I've been conditioned for. And then suddenly a very wise advice came back to me. And it was actually when I was about to leave for the Congo, I was interviewing a lot of people to, for advice. And all people had, you know, recommendations about what it would take to survive in Africa. And that it was all about seniority and respect and commanding respect and imposing yourself. And then I actually spoke with somebody who had worked there and had been highly successful. And he said, Dolph, there's nothing I can teach you. You, you will figure that out. But I have one advice. And he said, always remember that in order to receive, you first need to give. I will honestly admit the, the wisdom of that was completely lost on me initially. But then I was in the Congo and I realized the, the essence of leadership is not about taking, it's about giving. 
and it's taking care of your people and giving them respect, giving them confidence, giving them a sense of direction, removing their roadblocks. And it was extraordinary to have this team in the Congo had been losing market share forever. And actually, we were able to kind of shift that, unleash, uncage this team, and it became highly successful. And it was not about having the answers, having the solutions. It was actually about giving. And then it's extraordinary what the organization and team gives back. So that was, that was a very important moment when I started to reflect, hey, there's a whole other dimension that I've not learned about in my business administration studies. The second one was a sad one. Was was my last year in the U.S. Uh, and my father passed away, relatively young. He was sixty six. He died of a brain tumor. But we spent two three, the two three last months of his life we we spent together. I was flying back every weekend, and I invited him on a weekend away, just the two of us. And during the, it's the most important weekend of my life. And during that weekend, I asked every question I could imagine because I knew we would not have much time left. And the last question I had was one that I was scared to ask because he was, he was a professor, a banker, a bit of an old-fashioned, paternalistic kind of guy with very strong morals, but not very fashionable, you know, in, in, in kind of the latest management. But I wanted to ask him, Dad, what's your purpose? And I thought he would laugh at me. And actually, when I asked that question, he took it very seriously and he said, some, it's to make the world a tiny little bit better to work hard for it because it won't happen automatically. And it deeply touched me because it was not some grandiose purpose. It was just making the world a tiny bit better, but to work hard for it because it doesn't happen by itself. And that changed everything. And then I suddenly realized, you know, it has been a lot about Dolph being successful and being a great leader and this and that. And six months later, I was transferred to Mexico a very large operation, very complex, with a lot of people. And I arrived there with a very different intent, to be more multidimensional, not about just the business results, but also a much broader sense of results, of having impact in society. And that gave me the confidence to keep on expanding um, uh, on that. Because in the beginning, you're also a bit insecure. The others are not yet doing it. And then, you know, is this going to work out? So my... My Mexican time has been very important in learning how to get the balance right across the whole range of dimensions that define success and growth and profit is important. It's not that it's unimportant, but not to the detriment of sustainability, social equality, social fairness, responsibility, moderation in our sense as as an overall company. Yeah. And... It helps me today a lot, that experience, because I could do it there from the front lines. It was an operating company, really met with the team. And I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to my dad that the last thing he kind of said was giving me that wise advice. That was not grandiose, that was not, but it was small. But to me, it, it was the nudge I needed to shift and move on. Well, thank you for sharing that, uh, Dolph. Um, it's a very powerful story. So many questions that come up linked to this, but, but let me start with the one that, that immediately struck me is, so he, he was able to articulate that purpose pretty, pretty succinctly. Undoubtedly, that made you think about your own purpose. And are you somebody who has that clearly 
articulated purpose for himself always top of mind? Yeah, I, I worked with Nick uh, Craig and, and uh, we did this purpose. Uh, I, I did this kind of purpose quest with yeah. my leadership team in the US and, and Mexico. So I also have these fancy uh, statements and they helped at the time. But in a way, it comes down to make the world a tiny bit better and work hard for it. And I can put more fancy wording on it, but in essence, it's the same. For me, the working in a family company, I feel privileged. I'm working at Heineken, a family company where, where we think in generations, where it's about building something that lasts. It is about standing on the shoulders of those who came before you. And, and I'm not saying it's better or worse than a startup, but it's something unique and something that fits me. And I think it fits me who I am as a, as a person. And to move from that generic statement, as my father verbalized it, to for me, it's really making sure I leave this incredible community and company in a better place in all dimensions by the time I move on. In, in, a, in a deep way, no shortcuts, no, no, don't play for the audience, don't do things that, that are not sustainable, do it in a way that that it lasts. But also, you know, in order to have a company for the 57 years, five, it needs continuous change, continuous growth, continuous breaking down mental models and renewing them. And that's what I love doing. I just want to say, it sounds like you're extremely values-led. So it's almost values over purpose. It's the values that are the guiding light. And I wonder, so these values, do they change? I don't know. Well, you become more, I got uh, some serious coaching at some point, because I, when you're values-led, now, I, I think actually everybody in some way or shape or form is values-led. So I, I was so focused on it. Let me say it like that that I also became quite judgmental uh, when I had a colleague or a business partner who I perceived as being less value-led. And, and somebody said, Dolph, you need to become more understanding and, and more, more open because the, you are who you are and everybody is on, on their own path. So be more forgiven because I was a bit feisty in yeah. that uh, regard. And, and then I worried, yeah, but if I do that, then I'm compromising on, on my values. He said, no, not at all. So I had to untangle that in my mind that I can be value-driven, but you realize you're, you're operating in a, in, a, in a crazy world with all shades of gray and people from all walks of life with complete different experiences. So that changes, that through experience, you become a bit more humble and more modest about your, your values. But again, without compromising on the ones that you, that you value yourself most. Yeah, I agree. And, but I also think there's also change happening, let's say, in society with regards to these values. I'll give you an example. I think you've been thrown in the deep quite a few times in your career. I read a few background pieces about you and how you started in different markets and so on. It was always like, go and find out, go and figure out. And I, I think that's, that's something that talks very much to me as well. And, and that's what I've done all my life. But what I'm finding is that this generation now doesn't always, let's say Gen, Gen X, Gen Z, doesn't per se think it's great to be thrown in the deep and, and, and see what happens. Is that, a, is that a, a culture shift or how do you see that? Or do you recognize deep? And let me first ask that. I catch myself having the same thoughts, but then at the same time, I think every older generation thinks that of the younger generation. And talking about being thrown in the deep, you know, when I reflect on my 19-year-old daughter who 
graduated high school in the middle of COVID, didn't get the diploma, all our plans were, were ruined. So I think in a way you could also empathize with the next generation that their lives are in the deep much more than we were at that, uh, that time. So I, I think it's both a bit true. I, but I try not to be too generalizing and judgmental of the next generation. Let me put it like that. Very true and very wise, uh, I'd say, uh, and, and very hard to argue with. There's, there's one more thing that you mentioned that I want to get back to. You said so that in Congo you learned start by giving. Angela Ahrens earlier in this series, and she said basically as a mantra, give 60 and take 40, which is not exactly the same, but, uh, but, but very related. Can you give me an example of, let's say in Congo, what, what did that mean? You give first before you take. And maybe I use that word. I don't like the word take. It's, it's give and receive. Because it, it, it's maybe give, giving, giving 10 and receiving 200. It's really amazing, the, the multiplier effect. Now, I think it goes from the most important. And I, worked, I was lucky to work basically on every continent, uh, from Africa to North, South America, Asia. The one thing which is universal, people want to be treated with respect. Also, people want to sense that they can belong. Those are universal human needs and desires. I think that is one of the most important things that leaders do is give respect, give self-respect, build confidence, create a sense of belonging, uh, create a sense. uh, That's why the whole IND theme is in a way not new. Again, there's more dimensions to it, but creating a culture of belonging is all about inclusion and making people feel part of the... So there's that. Then there's other stuff that is just mundane stuff. You know, when you have a sales force, so at that sales force, and one of the kind of symbolic things that kind of stood out in the beginning was that I found out that uh, their motor, they were supposed to have motorcycles to visit their, their customers. They had all broken down ages ago. So they were spending part of their salary to take these little African minibuses crammed with 25 people to visit their customers, eating into their salary, wasting time. And at that time, the company was kind of technically insolvent. So I said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but I won't rest until every single one of you will have a motorcycle to go to work. And it took me, I believe, two years, but everyone got a motorcycle. No rocket science, nothing complex. But I realized that's the key obstacle I need to remove. Um, So it goes from more fundamental things like belonging, respect, direction, to mundane stuff like get the motorcycle or get the stupid procedure out of the way or give them the right resources. And when you change your role from... As a leader, my number one, two, and three task is providing for my team and making sure that they can do what they need to do to unleash them, to engage them. Certainly, it becomes easy and obvious. It took me a while to figure that out, unfortunately. And, and both the giving them respect, enabling them, etc., it all starts with listening. There's, there's this beautiful book. I, I don't actually, the book isn't that beautiful, but the title is beautiful. Uh, and it's called Listening is an Act of Love, which I think is actually true. If you're really listening, I believe that's, that that is an act of love. Are you a good listener? No, I, I think like, like any other smart pants, you know, I my challenges in that regard. I, I was lucky that I worked a lot abroad in uh, other cultures, other languages, 
where initially my French, my Spanish was so poor that I was doing a lot of listening just so I didn't need to show my, my poor French, my poor Spanish. So, but all joking aside, no, I think we can always do better. I can always do better. But yes, you learn as a leader to listen more and more and pay and particularly pay attention. It's funny. I actually, I love one of the advantages. We're all bitching and moaning about Teams and Zoom calls. What I love about it as a leader, it really helps you to notice who likes to speak, but is more introverted and doesn't want to. You develop a complete new sensibility. Who wants to say something that they're hold back? Well, when you're sitting around the table, somehow you miss those signals. So it's about listening uh, yourself, but also really making sure all the voices are, are being heard and being invited in. And that's a never-ending journey. You can always become better at that. Yeah, so, so the, what you're saying is you evolve or you develop how you listen? Yes. The, the, there's a, a difference between listening until somebody's finished speaking to then confront that person with your answer, your solution, your ideas. Or there's listening to see how you can co-create something between the two of you to, or the five of you or the 10 of you in a complete new way. And actually, when I stepped in my current role and we were faced with, with all the realities, we really designed a lot of our meetings for co-creation to make sure that, you, that we listened in a different way and that we dialogued in a different way so that we co-created things that none of us individually could solve for because the complexity was so high, the speed of change was so high. But indeed, it starts by listening in a different way where you're not listening to confront the, the person with the solution or the answer. It's back to the conditioning of us in the Western world. It goes even a step further. It's... It's real opening listen, open listening, I think, is about being completely detached of the outcome. Yeah. Just really wanting, you know, be open to hear without wanting, per se, anything from or with that. Yeah. But that's damn hard. I, I don't is. pretend <laughs> I'm doing that, uh, uh, you know, 100% of the time. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, most viewers here are marketers and, and, and they're very goal oriented, <laughs> typically. Yeah. So for them, it's even harder, uh, I, I can say from experience. One last thing about yourself. It's just in the context, you mentioned the words humbleness, something that grows in you as, as you grow older and advance in your career. In, in, in the research I did, it was remarkable that actually in a, like three or four different articles, you were called a wonder boy. What's that do with you? Yeah, I don't like that. That's not the way you want to portray yourself. But at the same time, you have to accept when your career develops itself fast, yeah, that people have that perception. Uh, so it has always bothered me a little bit. But at the same time, yeah, it is, it is what it is. I, there's also a part you own up a little bit. And, and I think a lot of kind of senior leaders uh, struggle a bit that you set the bar very high for yourself. You have very high standards. You aim for excellence and you, you know, expect that also from others. And at some point, that always raising the bar and always aiming for perfection is unbecoming. And again, you need to humble also in that regard uh, a bit more. So, yeah, I hope that people say it less and less now. It's part of it, uh, I guess. Mostly leave it with them. Yeah. So... I want to switch to leading humanized growth, but start with, with the current context. So actually the economist mentioned, but also uh, IRG, Institute for Real Growth Research, confirms or, or showed that in uh, COVID times, resilience 
was the most important make or break characteristics of, uh, of companies and of people. So how resilient is, is Heineken? I think very resilient. And one of the key, the key elements there is that we still proudly have a very opco-centric model. So we're in, represented with breweries and activities and, and people in 80 countries directly. We're selling basically in every country on the planet, but 80 where we have assets, people, teams, and the local management team has full autonomy to lead their business. And that made us very resilient in, in the, for example, the beginning phase of, uh, of COVID, because the head of us were getting overwhelmed yeah. with so much information, yeah. conflicting information. And we were able to keep decision-making very close to the market. We believe in it as marketers, and because in the end of the day, we're brewers and marketers, to, that we need, and we don't believe in globalizing brands too much. It is about local consumers and customers, so we keep decision-making, P&L responsibility, very close to local consumers and customers. That made us very resilient. The other thing is almost all of us uh, grew up by working in these crazy places, you know, like the Congo or Papua New Guinea or Haiti. So a lot of our leadership at one point or another in their careers, they have been in uh, countries where without COVID, it's very challenging to, to operate and, uh, and, and succeed. So yes, I, I take great pride in the resiliency in the company, but it has to do with local decision-making and autonomy close to you know, the front line. And that's something you want to keep because, because obviously if you, if you look at the Heineken brand, which is super global, uh, and led globally, uh, as for what I know, is that the exception, or is there like there's a small portfolio of brands that are led really globally, and the rest you led led local? So still, the majority of our brands are local. We have a couple of very sizable regional brands like Tiger in in Asia, Desperados in Europe. You have your brand Heineken, and you can uh, so Heineken is a great example of a global brand but that's locally activated so i still think you know that works well in our model the one weak spot in our model if you want is when when the decision making is so local that also you don't leverage the network effects it's harder to really very quickly learn you know a, a fantastic idea in one market and replicate it to the other and what we're trying to do now in our kind of transform program called evergreen is to keep that local autonomy and ownership and passion for the, for the local business, the local people, the local results, but also to create much more connective tissue horizontally, not vertically in a hierarchical power control uh, sense, but horizontally to learn and scale and amplify much quicker. That's the shift that we really need to, uh, to make. That sounds great. Uh, connective tissue horizontally. Tell me, what, what's that look like? What is that? And the great thing was that COVID helped because when, so I was uh, still in, in Singapore when, uh, when COVID, uh, COVID started, you know, the, the first market started to learn about it. And then it went so quickly that a lot of European, they had to reach out to their colleagues in Asia, like, how does it work? What happens? You know, what are the priorities, etc. So if I read in a very organic way, there was no big consulting project or big corporate initiative. In a very organic way, it started happening. Then suddenly all these collaborative electronic tools, teams, uh, workplace, 
created the kind of plumbing for people to very low barriers start connecting to each other. So I have to say, I've been lucky in that sense that the circumstances called for it. And also right at that moment, technology had evolved to such a state that it's so easy to connect now. And of course you can do a lot of things around communities and, and, and how you combine people and projects, etc. But in essence, it started already shifting because of COVID. Well, I'm going to, we're going a little bit all over with, with the question, <laughs> but that's fine. I had one question about maybe related to the connective tissue is if you think about future proving your teams and how to prepare better for, for the future, what would you recommend if people have to choose one? Learn how to write code, start playing in sandbox, or have a real beer with a consumer in a real bar. What is what is future proofing the best? I'm very tempted for the third one. That's a good idea. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> next time we should meet in a bar. Uh, yeah, that was the plan. Um, for this, this recording, would, exactly, right? that would be more fun. I, I think it's a bit of all three. But what, what's important to us, our model, and that's maybe what you were alluding a bit with your generation uh, question. Our model as Heineken was going places. You're, you're uh, a young uh, talent. Um, uh, you were sent to a place. You didn't get any training or any support. You were thrown in the deep end. And if you floated, great. You yeah. could say and you got promoted. And, and if not, you know, uh, you moved on. Yeah, that model is too rough a model. It, it makes for a bunch of resilient leaders, but that's not the way to build capabilities at scale. So what we're realizing that we need to be much more intentional about upskilling, about building capabilities. And that's something that was done very organically at hoc. It was more a menu card and everybody could pick what, uh, what they wanted. We, and I, I don't think we have it all figured out and cracked, but that's very important upskilling, capability building, but with focus, because you can lose yourself in how many skills and how many competence capabilities are out there. So as a leadership team, we're spending actually quite some time. What are really those kind of core strategic capabilities that we need to transform? Not incremental change, but transform. And that's actually a big part of Evergreen and what we're figuring out. Some of it is clear, some of it is kind of emerging. Yeah, that's how I would talk to that. So you know that the Institute runs CMO programs. Uh, your colleague, Cindy Terford, is a, a proud uh, alumnus of, of our program, and she, she contributed greatly, um, as did by now 300 other CMOs. And it was, it's like an eight-month training of how to drive more humanized growth, how to create sustained value for all different stakeholders. As a topic, is that also something that you cover in your capability building? Like, is that something that as a company you try to, to strengthen? Yes. B below the fancy programs is, is one thing that we realize that we need to dial up is curiosity. If there's one thing, it, it's not even coding. Yes, we need more people coding, etc. But it's curiosity. And that is the flip side of a legacy company of five generations that that are strong mental models. There are strong belief systems. There's high pride, huge passion. Yes. And that gets in the way of curiosity. And the number one worry I have is the, the insufficient curiosity. Things are changing so rapidly outside. It starts 
by curiosity and breaking mental models, shifting mental models, becoming more open-minded, and then make sure that you have the right professional capability programs and initiatives to channel that. But it has to do with a shift from your beliefs, your mental models, your assumptions to being truly open-minded. It's a bit back to the open listening without having the outcome in mind. It's the same here. And that's hard in, in, a, in a such a successful company over generations. I think it also really correlates with humility. Because I remember that uh, Phil Schiller, the CCO of uh, Google, told me, he said, hey, Frank, you know what? We are positively paranoid. And what he meant with that, he said, because I know that any other small startup can be the next Google. And can yep. be, and we, we just, so I think it has to do with humility and not thinking you're there and you're it. But actually, you can learn from anybody, junior people. This, this is super hard. I think this is one of, this is a key task of leaders that is to fight complacency. And I think Andy Grove, the old CEO of Intel, actually uh, originally said, you know, you have to be absolutely, you know, continuously paranoid uh, or something. Yeah. And I, I really believe that because organizations, as they are successful, you, you reap the, the next crisis because you start believing in, you know, this is the way things are. And the most difficult is to be paranoia and disrupt a successful company. By the time you're in a crisis, or by the time you're in a problem, it's, it's kind of obvious you have a burning platform. It's very hard to do it continuously while you're still successful. That's what we are trying to do. Not easy, but complacency, is, it's very human, but it's really a big company disease. And, and you, yeah. you need to pay attention every single day. Indeed, the complacency, the humility, I think it's all about, let's say, that profile of, I think it's related also to the resilience and being indeed future-proof in a, in a super fast-changing world. If you look at what Heineken has always been about, and, and you talked, as you mentioned it quite a few times, the different stakeholders that you want to give back to, who do you consider your key stakeholders? Consumers, customers employees. Yes, shareholders are very important, but that's the outcome. If you take care of consumers, customers, employees, the shareholders will be, be happy because you will be uh, successful. And of course, you, you need to do that in the, the larger context of uh, the society you're uh, operating in. Can you make it sound like it's a rank order? Consumers, customers, and employees. Is that, is that like in your head? Is that where, you're, where the focus should be? Let me, it's not, not on a slide or a frame on the wall. Uh, so I say it kind of organically, but when I think about it, yeah, we all subscribe to the multi stakeholder capitalism model. And that's it. But somehow, you know, you can't be thinking about 20 dimensions uh, all the time. So for me, it is really about your consumers it is really about your customers it is about employees a lot i find then the shareholders will be taken care of and you do that in the larger context let me say the dilemma i feel as a ceo in the times that we're living i'm uncomfortable in being an activist ceo i'm uncomfortable in screaming and preaching to the world what i feel very strongly about is doing the right things and take the right actions so as an example when when Black Lives Matter happened, I took a very clear stance in the company about where we were, but also acknowledging all our own imperfections and how much we had to do. And I deliberately chose not to speak about it externally and start preaching, you know, at that moment in time uh, to the world. So 
And, and that's why I make it about consumers, customers, employees in the context of society. Because of that kind of discomfort of to start preaching to society and be an activist company or an act. And I don't want to judge others who do that. They may fit their culture, may fit their, their purpose. It doesn't suit us. On top of that, we are an alcohol company. And then we always need to be a bit extra restrained. So, so for example, the, the famous ads from Nike with Colin Kaepernick, that would not be, and Heineken would not do so. I don't think so. Not because we don't agree with the point. Our company purpose is the joy of true togetherness. Since the invention of beer 6,000 years ago in Mesopotamia and Egypt, beer has always been a social product. It was There's literally hieroglyphs of a big vessel and a bunch of people with the big straws drinking from it together. That It's a social lubricant. It is about connecting people, bringing people together. That's why we say the joy of true togetherness. That's our purpose. If we would make the point... We would want to make it in an inclusive way, not in a polarizing way. And sometimes we struggle with that. We, uh, we did a commercial last year that we loved. It was called The Night is Young. It was a commercial of a bunch of older people partying. And I, you may have seen it in the running in the ocean at the end of the party. And, and it was The Night is Young. It said, The Night is Young, and it belongs to the vaccinated time to join them. And then that fantastic commercial, which was all about coming back together, celebrating life, it became judgmental. It became polarizing. As much as I personally believe that we should get vaccinated, we realized that is not our role as Heineken. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to work through togetherness, bringing people together. And the thing backfired and we pulled it back, said, no, it's still a valid point to make, but that's up to others. That's not up to us. That doesn't fit us, if that makes sense. So I think you need to be very aware of your company purpose, your brand purpose, your brand role, your brand tone. And for us, it's more about bringing together. You can still make, make a, take a stand. And on uh, social matters uh, like LBGT rights, etc., we've done it. But we try to do it in an inviting inclusive way rather than a judgmental pointing fingers way, if that makes sense. And, and do you let, because you said we're a highly decentralized company, so do you let all these different opcos make their own choices on things like these societal uh, issues, vaccination, etc.? Now, so on Brent Heineken, the, the team led by Bram here in, the, um, in Amsterdam is really in a position of influencing how we go about that globally. On the local brands, everybody can take it. And, and there's no fancy memos coming from the head office how to go about it. But somehow we all know each other. We, we really have a family culture. I think somehow it's very rare that we have to intervene because something really crazy happens in an opco that we would, from a global point of view, say, why would you do that? But it's not because there is a rule book. No, maybe it's because the values are very clear and people buy into that. Yeah. And- even if people are in very remote places. There's one, I have one experience where we took a strong stand that it was when I was in Mexico with Tecate. And Tecate was this ultimate masculine brand. It's a big issue for beer brands that for generations, it was a bunch of men marketing to men. And we really, by the way, inclusion diversity is not just the right thing to do. It's, it's a matter of business survival, I feel, because we need to, make sure that we market to a much more diverse consumer uh, base. Now, in Mexico, we were not there yet. So we have this super masculine Tecate brand. 
And one of the big uh, societal issues is domestic violence, which in Latin America is a bigger problem than it already is globally. This was the time that after my father's passing, I came to, uh, to Mexico and we had a discussion as a leadership team about purpose and injecting purpose in the things we did. And the, the same invitation went to the marketing team. And then all the brand teams started proposing, oh, we're going to embrace this or that uh, brand purpose. And then the Takata team came back with domestic violence. And I completely freaked out, like domestic violence, you know, we, uh, you know, we are always accused of, to be part of the problem rather than the opposite. But the team was so persistent, a young, diverse team, late 20s, early 30s. And they made a artistic rendering. So they hired, you know, an art director who created the video and it was artistically so powerful, so touching, and it felt so right. But then we were still freaking out because there was an exploding bottle in it and there was a transgender hairdresser in it. So we started rationalizing, can you please take that scene out, can you take that out, etc. And somehow they just persisted and persisted and, and the video never got changed. And then we said, okay, now we're going to, nobody knew, not in the regional office in, Am- in Miami, not in Amsterdam. These days with Facebook, you can can buy small media, you know, we just do 100,000 people, Mexico City, nobody will know, we'll just run the commercial. And so we ran that video, within a day, it was in 64 countries. It went completely global, went completely out of control. I was getting vocals out of Amsterdam. We hear about this Tecate spot. And what was so beautiful, that, that young team had spent so much time with those NGOs, that have the, the shelters where, where they support the women that are victim of domestic violence, that they somehow got that tone right. And instead of, as an alcohol brand, being part of the problem, we became part of the solution because that commercial took a stand. Because it, in essence, it was masculinity and being a man is not about strength and power and bravery and courage. It's about respect for women. And if you don't, we don't want you. And then the bottle exploded and you, you know, you show shutters go down. And when I spoke later with people from the social workers who were de- dealing with this day to day, I said, I was so scared you would judge us going there. She said, no, we are so grateful. I said, why? She said, the whole problem is dealt with by women supporting women. And this is the first time a male voice nice. took a stand and said, hey, buddies, we're all friends, but this is the norm. And if you don't, we don't want you. That day, I learned something. Say, hey, wow. So indeed, as a brand, you can take a stand and you can contribute to a, a society. But it's super delicate. And maybe it was more luck than anything else. That I don't think it's luck. Right. I, I don't believe it's luck because I heard two real things. Like One, the team really listened. They engaged with the local communities and the people, that the frontline workers. And you said it was really true to the heart. They were being super authentic about it. And I think those two ingredients, like, of course, still things can go wrong, but will significantly increase your chance of, yeah. uh, of, of lack of backfire. But what I don't dare to do is say, okay, now every country run and... No. Because... Because then you're going to get it wrong. No, no. I, I was thinking, I mean, do you realize all these people from all around the workers, including your colleagues, yeah. have listened to, hey, that's interesting. So this little place in Facebook, that's how yeah. we can do it. But uh, th- there's another thing. As marketeers, you play off the stereotypes of society. And that's what we do. That's where a lot of the humor, the, the, the humor you use in advertising is playing off of stereotypes. 
Sometimes as a brand, you can help shift the stereotype to a more healthy place. So masculinity in Latin America, to some extent, is unhealthy. And there is a need for masculinity to evolve and, and become more inclusive and more progressive. So we had after that, because we didn't want to become the anti-domestic violence brand, because that is not authentic and true either. But we had long discussions about, okay, if we are still a, a rather masculine brand, how do we shift, evolve what masculinity means for us? And how can we help by the, the visuals, the symbols, the metaphors that we are using in our advertising? How can we shift it? We started experimenting. We got something right, something's not right. And that's very interesting. Uh, two, three years ago with Heineken, we did this commercial. You may have seen Cheers to All. It's a bar and there's a waiter coming with a bunch of cocktails and beers. And then he wants to give the cocktail to the lady, but the guy yeah, grabs yeah, yeah, the cocktail yeah, yeah. and then the lady grabs the beer. Yeah. It's playing off the stereotypes and trying to shift them. It's really fun rather than just leveraging off the existing stereotypes and actually generalizing them to the point of stupidity, how do you actually help stereotypes evolve to a, yeah, a more healthy, more inclusive place? No, brands can play a role both on, on awareness and knowledge as on feeling and attitudes as on actual behavior and, and make a positive impact as such. No doubt about it. Dolph, we actually overran. Typically, we keep this to an hour sharp. Okay. Um, I didn't realize. No, me neither. I just watched my, my clock. But it's, I guess it's a good sign. Um, a few things to end with. One, is there any last call to action that you would like to do to this audience of mostly of, of, of senior marketing leaders? Be curious. Give before you receive and have some fun and a beer along the way. <laughs> cool. Cool. And with that... I'm going to wish everybody a beautiful day and, and thank you sincerely, Dolph. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. It's the first time we went over time because it was so engaging. We could have gone on for, for a long time. I really want to thank you for your time and your insights and your openness. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Have a beautiful day. Cheers. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.